Welcome to the Full Capacity Living Podcast. If you have enjoyed the show in the past, please consider writing a review on Apple Podcasts and help this podcast reach as many people as possible. Your efforts are greatly appreciated. Today, my guest is Dr. Seema Patel, and we have a great conversation. She's a friend as well as a colleague, and our topic is mood, depression, stress, and some lifestyle shifts we can easily make to address these things from a more natural perspective. We do get a little off topic, so you will find some information about kids and allergies too, but this podcast is chock full of handy tips and tools to use daily to optimize mood and reduce depression. We talk about the hormonal component to depression, methylation of B vitamins, sleep and depression, the oral microbiome, and the connection to overall health, and so many interesting tools that are readily available now. Dr. Seema Patel is a board-certified family medicine physician and an Institute for Functional Medicine certified practitioner. She earned her medical degree at the Ohio State University College of Medicine and her master's in public health at the University of Michigan. She practiced as a family medicine physician and the medical director in a federally qualified community health center devoted to underserved African-American and Latinx populations before coming to Cleveland. She then transitioned to integrative medicine and started her own practice devoted to optimal health. She became certified in functional medicine and has been at the Cleveland Clinic Center for Functional Medicine for the past four years. I do hope that you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Thanks for being here, Seema, and without further delay, here we go. Welcome, Dr. Seema Patel, to the Full Capacity Living Podcast. I'm excited to have you here, and it's been a while since we've seen each other, so it's also nice to see you. We're on Zoom, but we're only recording the audio. Um, but just welcome, and you know, our, our topic today is going to be depression and how that integrates with functional medicine and integrative medicine, but I also love to hear people's stories about how they got to uh, the world of integrative or functional medicine. So maybe start back in the beginning with your medical training. I mean, did you always know you wanted to be a doctor? Well, say, first, thank you so much. And it's wonderful to see you. I miss hanging out with you and laughing. Oh yeah. Actually, um, so my father always told, we had two girls and a boy. And he always told the, my sister and I, you must make enough money to take care of yourself. So when you get married, you choose to be, with your husband because you wish to be, not because you are economically dependent. Oh, that's and so when I told him I was going to be a teacher, he was like, no, not working <laughs> for me. <laughs> so kind of, I mean, he's like, well, you can still be a doctor. You can teach people. <laughs> so that's why, I mean, to be totally honest, I don't have any great dreams of being a doctor, but I was like, I had these things I had to do for my father. And he's like, that's not going to meet my criteria. Oh, so, wow. But I'm yeah. actually, you know, when I think back, I'm like, I am so grateful that piece of advice if i had to give that to young women i see so many women who are economically dependent mm -hmm. on their husband and sometimes it's a really bad situation and the amount of stress that it causes them mm -hmm. um so i'm grateful for that advice i i don't think everyone has to be a physician for that but uh but right. i i 
That's yeah. good advice. I mean, I think, um, you know, any woman nowadays would be happy to hear something like that because I, I don't know that we talk so much about that as a goal of, of why you would go and find something that, that speaks to your soul, but also takes care of you. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I, I chose family medicine because I wouldn't take care of all ages and I didn't want to just take care of the elderly. I knew that. <laughs> like so how am I going to get this full spectrum and at that point in my life I wanted to do international work so I figured you know if I get marooned someplace I can take care of everybody and I'll be just fine <laughs> yeah. so that was sort of the you know and I did traditional medicine I learned everything but as almost as you know in functional medicine you get to somewhere about you know the fifth year you're like this is not working um, and I was working in a federally qualified community health center I had been at Cook County before that so clearly working with the underserved and there's a drain on people and working with underserved care. It's, it's hard. It's hard work. You really don't make much of an impact because the whole environment and their terrain of where they live, there's a, it's, it's endless. It's hard to shift that. Yeah. Yeah. It's really hard. And I just couldn't do it anymore. So I literally opened up my own integrated medicine boutique. I'd done some reading and some training, but you know, I didn't have a, full certification, but I'm like, I know a lot about nutrition. I know a lot about hormones and I'm just going to optimize people. And I literally put up my shingle. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. That's yeah. Cool. And it wasn't like, you know, but I mean, I continued to do all my training and I did that for 10 years. I also had just cause you know, when you're in private practice, you have to make money right away. So I did do a medical spa on that cause the cosmetic end was very lucrative. And then I grew my wellness, um, as my practice continued to grow and it grew the most when there was an economic recession and remember 2007 2008 oh yes absolutely. all these wealthy people lost so much money and they all started coming in they're like i cannot lose my health and it was like i exploded when everybody else was suffering it was like this was the cosmetic and just stopped it literally right. stopped but this part of my business took off it was so well, ironic in my thinking, like, why would people do it now? But as I listen to them, they're like, if I don't have my health, I am nothing. I've lost millions. I mean, these were very wealthy people. I was a right. cash business. Um, and as that practice grew, more and more people started coming in and, you know, they were getting sicker. They were no longer just like, <laughs> I'm here for hormones. I'm here just for optimization. I'm just here for healthy aging. I saw a lot of people that I'm like, I don't really know what to do. All the stuff that I knew wasn't working, but I was moving. So I kind of wrapped up that practice and my husband took a job here at Cleveland. Um, okay. And then I met Mark Hyman and he's yeah. like, oh, you know, you should do functional medicine. <laughs> okay. So I went and I got my training and then in during my training, um, you know, at this, you know, the other back end of my life was my, my youngest son had severe anaphylaxis to dairy. He had two anaphylactic reactions. He had severe asthma. He was, you know, I was already doing what I knew from integrated medicine. It just wasn't enough. And then when I started doing functional medicine, I was like, huh, started experimenting with the stool, you know, I started adding I started working with um, an integrative allergist who was doing traditional Chinese medicine, and he started to get better from a combination of everything, not just functional medicine. The integrative medicine with traditional Chinese medicine, I think, was really critical. I um, sort of remember now that you say that with your, your son, wasn't there a very controversial, interesting treatment that you used with him? Yeah, I am still using it. <laughs> 
Do you want to talk about that? We don't have to, but. So, I mean, as my son got better, we continued to do traditional Chinese medicines, but he got to a point where, you know, when he was little, I could hide everything. I could stick him in a bath and soak him in this like brown water for like, you know, <laughs> by half an hour. But, you know, as he got older, he's like, I'm not doing that. I'm not drinking that. It's gross. <laughs> and so then I was like, oh my gosh, you know, I, my goal was a cure. I understood this is not going to happen right away. This is going to be you know, they said he would never get better. So never is a really long time. And I'm like, it's okay. If at any point in his life, he gets gross out of it, it was fine. So I was okay with time in that sense of if it took years, I was still okay. okay. So then the other thing that was talked about outside of traditional Chinese medicine was helmets, which is parasites. So if you look at, you know, epidemiology, people who live in developing countries, there's actually no allergies. Mm -hmm. because we live in union with parasites and the IgE antibody is really for protecting us against parasites. So when we use very tiny amounts, um, you start off at small doses, you can go up, people use massive amounts up to like 2000, um, but we're only using about 40, 50 and he's consistently getting better. And I've asked Dr. Baker, who I work with, Sydney Baker, should I use more? And he said, well, he's improving in all aspects. That more is not always better. So um, there's a really good book called The Absence of an Epidemic by Dr. Moises. Um, and so that's something I often refer patients to who are like, I think I might want to do this. We are not doing this at the Cleveland Clinic. We do this um, you know, I just give him his number and like, you know, work with Dr. Baker, yeah. but you know, it's not only just for allergies in his book, Dr. Moises talks a lot about um, inflammatory bowel disease, autoimmune conditions, because it's the same thing. Our immune system got confused and was dysregulated. And there is more information that's being, but I just did my son's stool study. So I'm very curious to see <laughs> what happens. Um, yeah. But you know, he, he's grown you know, in the animal kingdom, if you look at the animal literature, animals with the greatest amount of parasite burden, that's not toxic. There's like toxic parasites and then there's like commensal parasites. Right. Yeah. Are the kings of the tribe. They tend to have more of the females, more of the breeding rights. And it's fascinating. I'm like, oh, this is so interesting because we, you know, oftentimes in functional medicine, look at parasites as a negative, but right. they're actually doing helmets at lower doses that are just getting incorporated in to teach that IgE antibody that look, this is what you need to go after, not after his dairy, not after common proteins. Yeah, so you're, you're saying um, helmets? Helmets, H-E-L-M-I-N-T-H-S. Okay, all right. These are parasites, so those are worms. Yeah, worms. I know. And when you talked about that with me, you were like, oh, let's keep it a little quiet. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm glad, you know, and we're, I'm going to bring you back to maybe talk about this in more length because it is fascinating stuff. And I know kids are also a big part of your, your practice in functional medicine. So, you know, all of this stuff like intersects, right? What you're talking about with kids also, as you said, it's all autoimmune. It's it's a response that our body has. It's a systemic thing. So, so when, you know, our topic here is really around depression and the, the functional medicine and integrative medicine way of, of thinking about that, um, let's, let's move into like what you look at in the gut microbiome for that. I mean, you know, there's, there's all sorts of things to be done, but when you first get someone and their major 
thing is depression. It came on. It wasn't something that they had maybe um, in the previous couple of years, but it's it's just, you know, and there's nothing nothing major that maybe happened. Maybe there is, but um, what's what's the first thing that you would do for someone like that? So if there's no past history of depression and nothing that was kind of building, I mean, you know, in functional medicine, we always do a timeline. So I really believe the timeline is important because this immunobiography of all your past exposures and incidents start to pile up. It, it isn't any one. So it's like, think of it a lawn, as like a laundry bag. It's really, it just starts to pile up with different things that are happening. And then you throw a piece of underwear in and all of a sudden it just falls <laughs> apart. And you're like, well, right. why? It wasn't the underwear, yes. right? It's yes. all of this other thing that's been bubbling inside of you. And so we're going to, just for talking, we're not going to talk about like severe depression because that's a different ball game. Exactly. There's a lot of mild to moderate depression. And, you know, you can, you know, we can see it in the promise scores that academic institutions do on mental health. There's that PHQ-9, the higher the number goes, the worse the depression is. Same with the promise score. We want to be above 50 when it's, you know, less than that, there, there's some room for improvement at 30, 34 is usually what patients are coming in with at the Cleveland Clinic. And that's usually pretty bad um, yeah. Yeah. or, you know, moderately bad. So, you know, those are all things that we're looking at to see how bad is it and how much more people do we need to get involved? Because I really believe mental health is a team approach. But when I think of it from a functional medicine standpoint, I am doing that timeline and I can kind of tie in lots of things. And so how we think about it, you know, we go back and we're like, you know, what was your birth like? What was your mom's pregnancy like? Because if mom had a lot of mental health issues or trauma, guess what? The scaffolding of that child for the rest of their life has been set. Um, I apologize for that. Um, it has been set. And so they're always going to be coming from that scaffolding. Mm -hmm. So it's really important the way we treat our pregnant women. And are we addressing their mental health? Mm -hmm. um, and then we think, you know, what happened in childhood? You know, did you have any adverse childhood events? Were you loved and nurtured? You know, did you get a lot of antibiotics? Because the gut microbiome was developing very early on. And if we got a lot of antibiotics early on, then the question is, who's growing there? Mm -hmm. I don't know. You know, um, what kind of diet did you have? You know, what was high school like? Were you bullied? You know, because bullying has a huge impact on mental health. When you look at the neural imprint of what bullying does, it's the same as if you were abused or sexually assaulted. Mm, yeah. That's, I mean, most people are like, oh, it's just bullying. It's not a big deal. Like, no, your body does not look at it and say, oh, this was worse. It looks at the pain that the person is suffering from. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. provide that imprint. And I think that's really important because I think we tend to blow off bullying as a lesser degree, but it has the same neural imprint. So that's one of the things I'm always looking for. And then your twenties and your thirties, you know, you're looking like, especially for my women, I'm looking like, did you have any problems with PMS? Did you have postpartum depression? Because it's setting up that they are hormonally dependent. Mm -hmm. There's some hormonal component to it. Men tend to have more stable lines because their testosterone should go up and it should stay up into their 20s, well into their 30s. What we are finding with men's health is that their testosterone is not going up as high. 
I am noticing that. I seem to be getting more clients that are saying, oh, my testosterone is really low and they're putting me on. And that's a lot of these environmental toxins. Mm -hmm. And that's whole, and for male sperm. I mean, for, well, it's, we're talking about depression, but, you know, all of men's health is related to, you know, how much testosterone they, I mean, not all of it, but a lot of it, just like women, it's related to their hormones. You know, how high does their testosterone go? I mean, in your 20s and 30s, it should be well over. It should be around 1,000, even more. Yeah. And if yeah. you're not hitting that, you're forever going to be hitting lower in the mark. And those are environmental toxins, which is beyond what we're going to talk about. But these are all things impacting them. So, you know, so when we're doing assessment, I'm doing environmental, like, where did you live? What kind of work did you do? What kind of stress did you have? What kind of diet did you have? Did you have any medical problems? Did you take any medications? So all of these are impacting everything. So when we think about it from a functional medicine standpoint, we think like genetics, maybe there's you know, is there a family history of depression? So maybe there's some methylation defects that we need. Methylation, yeah. 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 But that's like 25%. Sure. Right? And that's, I think that's important to know. Um, first of all, talking about the timeline and helping people understand why it's so important to go back and look at that stuff, especially, as I said, people think it just started now. Well, it didn't just start now. It started a long time ago. And here's the reasons why we need to address these factors, because people want to just stick with one thing. I just want to change my diet, and I think that'll be it, right? <laughs> but when you look at all those factors, you kind of, you know, bring people into the understanding that it's been a lifetime of getting there. Um, mm -hmm. But also, you know, understanding that that genetics is only a smaller part that we than we thought initially. We used to, you know, I still have people say, well, my family just has this and, you know, it's it's just part of our DNA and, you know, everybody gets, everybody has a stroke or everybody is diabetic. Well, that's a very small portion of, of the reason why it happens. So tell me about methylation. So methylation is how we utilize vitamin Ds. Um, it is actually, it's a detox pathway. It's a neural pathway. It's a developmental pathway. It's a neuroplasticity pathway. It's used for so many things. Um, you know, and it's, it has so many genes involved. And the one that only everybody talks about is MTHFR, but it's right. only one small aspect of methylation. Yeah. I mean, there's hundreds of genes and different epigenetic points, not even just genetics, epigenetic points at, with methylation turns on and turns off. And what are the things that turn on and off? It's huge. I mean, it could be hours of lectures on this. But people just focus on this one little gene. And I'm like, okay, that it's a part of it. But remember, 75% of what's still happening is environment. So methylation is about making sure we're getting the right vitamin Bs. And ancient man did not take vitamin Bs. They got it through food. Yeah. I mean, so four-legged animals will give you vitamin B12 in the right form. Two-legged animals to a lesser extent. Eggs to, you know, we'll do it, but you know, if you're getting four legged animals and you don't have to do it every day, it's a couple times a week. I mean, ancient man did not have meat on a regular basis, right? but dark leafy greens, those will give you all of the vitamin Bs, seeds yeah. and nuts. I mean, so there's lots of places where we can get this through diet, but since our diet has become the standard American diet, which is all processed food and fortified now with folic acid, which is not the right form for methylation. Your body has to break down specific vitamins, B12 and folate into the right form. So folic acid has to go through multiple transformations that require a methylation gene, multiple different genes involved to form 
of either folinic acid, which is really great for the brain, or methyl tetrahydrofolate, or just folate, mm -hmm. um, that is in the right form. And then B12 has to be broken down into the normal kind, which we have is cyanocobalamin to methyl B12. And then there's another defect, which is the COMT defect, which is also polymethylation, which drops it down into hydroxy B12. Mm -hmm. um, so all of these are important, but once again, if we get it through diet yeah. and we're eating a balanced diet, we don't need support. All right. Well, and this is where I think patients really get, I mean, most of the time I'm seeing them, you know, from Cleveland Clinic, they're like so deep in the hole. We have to provide them support and yes. pull them back out. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so, so there's a couple of things here um, where I'd like to kind of connect the methylation and, and everything that you're talking about with, as you said, neuroinflammation and depression and how that can contribute to depression. But there's also a really good book, Ben Lynch, um, mm -hmm. Dirty Genes. That talks about fantastic book. I love that book. Fantastic book because it talks. So if anybody is really interested in learning a little bit more about MTHFR or the COMPT or MAO, any of those things, he's he's done a really good job of digging into that but also like saying okay here's how we clean them up right right and, and you can actually take as the as the person reading it a little survey and say like, oh do i have this gene maybe i don't so it kind of helps you yeah yeah so connect with me on um the methylation and, and depression and how those two things connect you know so typically when you are missing um folate um or folinic acid or methyl or B12 or hydroxy B12, people tend to have more of a depressed mood. They are part of, um, both of these are very important in making neurotransmitters. So this methylation, you know, there's like hundreds of parts, but there's one part that branches off and it helps you make your neurotransmitters. And if you don't have enough of the incoming substrate, you won't make those neurotransmitters. So then you're felt, you're, then you're depleted. And that oftentimes will lead to a lower mood. And remember, if you're eating mostly processed standard American food, which is fortified in folic acid, and then you have the methylation defect, you cannot convert that folic acid into the right form. So it becomes even more toxic, leading to more inflammation. So this is why if you're eating real food, you'll be able to convert it. It's already mother nature has given it to us in the right form. Man has not. <laughs> Right, right, right. So getting back to thinking about like, you brought up the word terrain earlier. And, and I think that's such a great way of thinking about it. I mean, we, we think about that for, um, you know, in France with wine, right? What's the terrain? And how does that influence the taste of the grapes? But the terrain for us, and as people is the food that we eat, the environment that we're exposed to, and what's going on in our own terrain. So right. It's the air you breathe, the water you breathe. What was the train of your childhood? What were the schools old? I mean, all of this is always affecting you. Most people come in and they're like, well, I mean, this is fine right now. But I'm like, if you go back and you think about it, like, have you ever experienced this? Have you ever walked into an old building? Mm -hmm. You know, all of those things are really important, but we forget because we're in this small bubble. Right. Right. And I think sometimes, too, I think it has to be balanced with helping people understand that because I've had patients who said, 
oh, I can't do anything about what happened when I was a kid. And so what, what, how is that going to help me now with my health, right? I, I'm bringing up all this stuff around, you know, adverse child experiences or, or environments that I was in. You talked about walked into an old building. You're talking about mold there, which is not where we're going to go, but we have to say it, <laughs> say the word out loud, mold. Um, but I think, you know, how do we help balance that with people and not get them into this place where they're so worried about things that they can't control anymore, the stuff in the past, but also think about how can I heal right now? How can I take this information, but also think about healing it? So, I mean, kind of going back to depression, once again, it's a terrain approach, you know? So when we think about it, first is always nutrition. Take the inflammatory foods out. And I know we all talk about that. So whether they want to do the full elimination diet or some version of it, take that crap out. That's the most important part. Um, but also, you know, look at how are you sleeping? Because in sleep is how our brain, because if we're seeing depression is a neural inflammation, if you cannot do something to calm your brain down, then you won't improve your sleep. I mean, your, your depression. And if you look at the depression literature, most people before they had a depressive episode had insomnia prior to that. So your well, sleep is, gets really discounted. We need definitely seven to nine hours and we need to have all the stages of sleep. So we must get enough deep sleep. We must have, not have enough REM sleep because this is how our body functions. It isn't like I need five hours of deep sleep, but you know, but it depends on what age, but roughly one to two hours, you get more, that's awesome. But that's really important. I mean, you have to alternate through REM sleep. Um, and then we're gonna have some more light sleep, but that's really critical. And then, you know, what what's your movement like? The literature on depressed patient is that they have something called low BDNF, which is brain-derived neurotropic growth factor. And if we have low levels of BDNF, we are also going to be more depressed. And if we have movement, it doesn't necessarily mean exercise, but regular movement, we improve that. Yeah. And the study is really about 35 minutes, five days a week of getting your heart rate up to a moderate amount. And I like what you say, because I always say this too, movement, not necessarily intense exercise, because people, intense exercise can also like go the opposite direction, right? Um, but just 35 minutes of walking and maybe interval walking, walking a little bit faster, slowing it down, maybe getting your heart rate up and bringing it back down. But I also want to go back to that sleep thing because I think Matthew Walker, who wrote um, a book about sleep, which is, uh, gosh, now I'm saying that, but I can't remember the name of it. I'll put it in the show notes. Um, Why We Sleep, maybe. But he's got some really strong research that connects the idea of um when we were talking about depression and sleep and that, you know, insomnia comes before that, that level of depression. Um, there's some really strong correlation to the sleep, the type of sleep that you do, um, that, that even from a, a young age, that that can be a correlate to lower functioning of neurotransmitters and, you know, brain inflammation, right? Because if you're not getting that good sleep and you're not using that lymphatic system to clean out the toxins as you sleep, then, you know, you're not allowing your body to, to optimize. So sleep, I think sleep is, gosh, I want to say that's even more important than, well, I, who knows, right? They're all important. 
Yeah, I mean, our circadian rhythm is totally messed up because of these iPads and electronics. I mean, like, you know, I mean, there's a lot of weaning I have to do, like no electronics two hours before bedtime, you know, get out first thing in the morning, see the sunlight, you know, make sure the melatonin shuts off, go out at nighttime, see the night setting, I mean, the sun setting, so your melatonin turns on and don't be on the computer, you know, I mean, like, we we don't, we just live badly. And it's, as you talk about, like, the terrain, like, we have to help create our own terrain. We have to put that, those boundaries around that stuff. I remember my my niece saying something at one point, oh, Karen, I know you don't, like, look at your phone after 8.30. And I'd never told anybody that I did that. But they just know if, like, a text message, you know, group text message comes through, I tend not to answer it after about 8.30 at night. And I thought, oh, okay, they realized that I actually do that um, because it is important. And you put those things away, not only for the blue light, but for the, the content, right? What's the content that you're looking at? That can affect your sleep as well. Um, totally. So, <laughs> right, right, right. I mean, I mean, you know, I think there was a lot of people who were just depressed with just the, what was happening in the world. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it was politics. It was what was going on with COVID. And I mean, it was so it just, it was a lot. Of, I mean, if you look at the statistics on stress and depression, there were first time people were calling for depression that they had never thought about ever before. Um, it was a 93% increase in, in stress in America for patients asking for help, um, anxiety and depression help during COVID. I mean, or ongoing, that's a huge increase. And the number of patients who were scoring for severe depression, anxiety was eight to 10 higher than it was before. Yeah. Yeah. It was tremendous. It's tremendous. And I, I, you know, I think it's still present, right? I mean, in the beginning of COVID because it's starting to shift and people are also feeling like, am I going to become isolated again? Because it's, it's, we're going into the fall and winter months, But, but the other piece of that too, I think we can talk about is the connection between, um, the increase in alcohol intake from this depression and, you know, people increase, I think on average people increase their amount of, um, you know, drinks of alcohol in a week to 17. And I mean, that's a lot, right? I mean, that's men, women, and that affects your sleep and that affects depression because you're just not, I mean, it's kind of a circular thing. That's one of the things that people use as a potential coping mechanism for stress and depression. Um, But let's talk about that. What are some better coping mechanisms? What do you talk to patients about in terms of coping with, with depression and stress as you're talking about nutrition and sleep and movement? Right. So, I mean, clearly we're going to work on all of those. And if, you know, if somebody needs to go talk to somebody, especially people who've had a lot of past issues, I mean, I refer them over to our holistic um, health department. If there's trauma, I really like to do trauma work. I love the book, The Body Keeps a Score, because that's all about past traumas that lay in you physically until you actually let them go. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we don't think of it as trauma, right? I mean, like my own personal, t- my son had two anaphylactic near-death experiences and I carried him into the ER. Like I didn't think of that as trauma. My sister's like, that's totally trauma. Cause you know, cause I'm a physician, I'm trying to like be like, oh, well, he's better now. But I mean, if I think about it, that was huge trauma. Absolutely. And I think as parents, sometimes we think we don't 
think about stuff because we're just like, we got to move forward. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of trauma. When somebody dies, that's trauma. But we don't, we just kind of like, well, that's just part of life and we got to keep moving forward. And yeah. we have to stop and we have to let that stuff go. Yeah. And I, it is really hard to do that. I mean, yeah. <laughs> Finish that stress response, basically, rather than stuffing it down and saying, it's it's okay, it just happened. It happens to other people or somebody else has worse trauma than me. It doesn't matter what somebody else had. It's still you know, how you felt about it and what your body responded to it. So tell me about the holistic health. Like so when you the refer people. Psychotherapists at the Cleveland Clinic, it's an amazing group of um, therapists. So they're trained very much look at the whole timeline and they go back and help people reframe using the adult person that they are or the uh, older person that they are to that child that oftentimes not have a good experience and kind of reframe that and then the other thing that they'll add and it's coming what they, they call it heart-centered it's always coming from a place of love uh, yeah um and kindness and compassion and if there are times that you need to reframe it they will do hypnotherapy mm-hmm. to help you reframe it they're not going to take it away they're just going to reframe it so it doesn't have to be all negative it's like what am i going to what can you learn from this mm. because sometimes when it's really bad, we can't learn from it. But every experience, when you can grow is when you can say, what am I going to learn from it? That's the bigger question. Well, and I love that you said they don't take it away because that's what we try to do. We numb. We want to just, we want to move away from it. We want to numb it. We just like want to go away. But it's important not to take it away, but to work through it and and look at it differently, as you're saying. That's, that's beautiful. What are some of the tools? What are some specific tools that people could use, even on their own? If they don't find, you know, I think people, um, holistic psychotherapists are around. I know um, I refer a lot of my clients to um, psychology today if they're out of this area to find somebody. Certainly in Cleveland, um, we've got a, a good group of people. Um, but what are some tools that people can use on their own that you talk to them about? So when it's mild to moderate, I mean, there are, you know, definitely lifestyle changes. Um, so I definitely like, one of the things I love is I love holy basil tea because mm-hmm. it's not a pill. I yeah. like having them drink it all day. It's an adaptogen. It's used in Ayurveda for a long time. And it's just a calming herb. You can use it in infants, breastfeeding, pregnant women. So it's all ages. Yeah. It does not interact with any medication, but it just kind of calms you down. So I really like that. I'm a big believer in gratitude journaling. So, you know, when people have taken away their iPads and they're, <laughs> they're like, what am I going to do? You know, so I'm like, I really want you to, I'm not an electronic gratitude journal. I want you to write. And I, I really like that because I don't know, I think this past year and a half, people don't have a lot to be thankful for. They're angry. They're upset. They're frustrated. And I need them to connect with what, when we come from gratitude, we see the world differently. And I have found 30 days of writing in that gratitude journal. It doesn't mean it's consecutive. Mm-hmm. I'm like, you have to have grace if you didn't do it. It's right. okay. I don't want 90 days. All right. I want it yeah, you know, yeah. next 45 to 50 days to do 30 days of work. And, and it doesn't need I, to be a book. You don't need to be writing. Yeah, no, it's basically, I mean, we start off with two or three sentences. Like, and sometimes they're like, what am I going to write? I'm, I'm just pissed at the world. I'm like, just be grateful that you have 10 fingers or 
four, four fingers and, you know, whatever, eight fingers and two thumbs, you know, however you want to place, that you have your breath. Yeah. Yeah. That you have a bed. Right. No, I mean, just let's, let's start basic. You have running water. You yeah. know, they're like, well, that's just like expected. I'm like, no, it is not expected. Right. Not for everyone. Pandemic, there are people who every day wonder if they're going to have a house over their head mm-hmm. or a roof over their head. So no. So when they start to stop and say, okay, there's a lot I'm taking for granted. Mm-hmm. And then we're shifting that mindset. That mindset has to be shifted because you can always look at the world negative. Absolutely. And even from all the stuff we do physically to somebody, from our own data at the Cleveland Clinic, what we see when we do one year's worth of functional medicine, our promise scores, our physical health scores continue to improve for the year. Mm-hmm. Our mental health scores improve for six months and then they decline again. Oh, interesting. And so once again, it's like, well, why did they decline? Physically, they continue to feel better, but we didn't change their mindset. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I think that is actually really important and learning to slow down mm-hmm. and to say, it's okay to just have a quiet moment and breathe. Mm-hmm. So I give them breaks and I'm like, you know, I'm going to write you a note where you have to give yourself a break every two to three hours. And you just, it's like two or three minutes. You can breathe, you can walk around, no coffee, you can drink water, but I need you to connect with all five senses to calm the system down. I know people are like, well, this is so basic. I, I know it's basic, mm-hmm. but I, for my patients, they're like, oh, right, right. And I think that people don't realize that that just a minute or two is enough to reset, especially if you take that time. So oftentimes people are thinking, oh, I don't have time to take this out of my day. I don't have any space. I've got back-to-back meetings. But if you can take one, two, three minutes just to kind of, as you said, like focus on your senses or do a little breath practice, five seconds in, five seconds out, it's amazing how much you can reset your brain. You're actually more efficient in your day. You feel better. You're calmer. Now, if you do have a little more time, I know you're a big person for grounding. And so people can go outside, take their shoes off, walk around. Um, and if you want to do the biohack, you can get the grounding mats. Right. <laughs> looking for the biohack, right? Right. Um, Close bathing, because you know what else can you do during COVID? Go into the metro park, and the whole concept is no Wi-Fi. It's a it's a Japanese um, study, and it's a practice in Japan where there's no Wi-Fi, and you have to get sort of lost, meandering through the forest or the metro park for about twenty minutes, and you connect with all five senses. So touch the trees, smell the air smell you know you don't have to if you want to smell something off the ground knock yourself out but that's fine no <laughs> open your mouth and there's a there's a there's a taste in the in the forest you know the yeah. there's different things that are blooming that you can actually taste look listen mm. you know feel energetically how quiet it is yeah that freaks people out sometimes right i mean you're talking about forest bathing mm-hmm. i think it cut out a little bit but it does for some people, it's like, oh, gosh, I could never be just alone and quiet without earpods in or listening to something. Or, But that's a really powerful practice. And if you can't do it for 10 or 20 minutes, you could start with five minutes, right? 
you know, and then you start to like just, you know, open it up a little bit and do a little bit more. I love that idea. I mean, and I mean, it's cheap, it's free. It doesn't cost you any money. I mean, all you have to do is get to a wooded area. It doesn't have to be the Metro Parks. It's just right. a wooded area. Yeah. And if you can't walk very far, it's okay. Just sit. Yeah. And stare. <laughs> it's it. I remember when I first started doing that and um, I, I would sit and, you know, for years I had this little like butterfly thing in my stomach and silly me, I'm, I'm thinking, what is that? I wonder what that is. I wonder what that is. Well, it was anxiety because I was sitting and not doing something when I knew I had this list of 10 things I needed to do. But gradually, as I did that more often and started a practice of meditation or breath work or doing any of these contemplative practices, it became easier to do. And then I started to crave it. And so it can be this small, meandering, slow movement into it where you just start with a couple minutes a day and then all of a sudden you start craving it and you find you're doing it for 20 minutes. I mean, if you look at an ancient man's way of life and today's man or woman, I mean, we are nowhere close to where we are. Ancient man was forest bathing, grounding like 24 seven. Right, right. And you know, when people are like, well, you want me to spend 20 minutes? I'm like, okay, look how far <laughs> you have come from our ancient ancestors. Mm -hmm. So, you know, once again, it's about reframing things because I just think we're, we're just so busy and I have really changed over the time where it is, it is quieter. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, I have a, we are, everyone has complicated lives, mm -hmm. we have very complicated lives. And I'm not saying one person's life is less complicated. It's all complicated, mm -hmm. but you have to within yourself make this time, whether, you know, you invest in a puppy or an animal, sometimes when you, when we have animals, it's easier to connect with nature mm -hmm. because they like being outside. Right. Yeah. But people are like, well, I have an indoor puppy. I'm like, there, there's no such thing as an indoor dog. Okay. That, that, that's a modern man concept. They're trained animals were outside. Yeah. We have just made them indoors because it's convenient for us. Well, you're the perfect example, Seema, because you, you know, you work basically full-time at the Cleveland Clinic you've got a couple of children, you've got a busy life, but you find time to put this into your day. And how do you even do it at work? So where do you find that space? So, you know, I, <laughs> my kids laugh at me. I'm in bed, knocked out to the world by 9.15, 9.30. I'm like, I can't do it. Um, because I'm up at 4.45. Mm -hmm. People are like, why are you up so early? Well, I really like, and I don't even crawl out of bed. I literally just prop myself. And that's how I tell my patients. I'm like, look, I don't get up and brush my teeth. I'm like, I just stop my timer and I prop myself up. My eyes aren't even open. And I first do my prayer and then I do my breath work and my meditation. And that's like 15 minutes. By that time, I'm kind of awake because, you know, I gave myself time instead of snoozing. And so, you know, then I'm, then I go and I work out because if I don't do this early in the morning, I can't. It doesn't. So I'm like committed to this, even if it's only 20 minutes. You know, right. some days I get 30, but most of the time I'm running a little bit behind that it's 20 minutes. Then I make lunch and run around and then I get dressed and I'm off to work, right? Because yeah. at nighttime, I really, before I even walk into the door, I give myself five minutes in the car. Oh, good. <laughs> I love it. Yes. Yeah. Because yeah. I, I know because once I, walk through that door, a different hat comes on. Yeah. 
And I, I have to stop and give myself that time. But what I have found is doing this, as you know, everyone works really long hours. I'm very efficient. I am like finished on time. I'm going home. I work like a maniac. I, and I walk at lunch. And I, I, and I walk in between patients. I, I really need to let go. I don't carry any kind of toxicity for my patients. Because we all have, you know, when we work, there are people that we work with that are very, very toxic. And we pick up their energy. And I'm like, you know what? I'm done. That is not mine to carry. This is a good example of someone who has a really very busy life who figures out how to get that into your life. Because that's one of the things I hear from a lot of the clients that I work with. Um, you know, I, I just can't imagine fitting that stuff in. How can I get that in, right? But I think what you also said, you know, sometimes it's only 20 minutes and you have to be okay with that it's only 20 minutes. But in 20 minutes, you can actually do some really much more effective exercise than spending an hour doing something, right? So like fitting it in into the, the cracks and the crevices of the day, but being intentional about it. And what a beautiful way to start the day is that you you have a prayer, you have a meditation practice, and you don't just jump out of bed and in a frantic way, feeling like, oh, I'm already behind the eight ball, I gotta do X, Y, and Z. Those are the things that create stress and then create that you know arc into depression, which can happen so easily. So all of these little practices that we're talking about directly connect to um, you know the, the management of that depression and, and really not making sure that that doesn't happen. The other thing you said, you don't get out and brush your teeth really quick. Not that you don't brush your teeth, but I want to connect the oral microbiome too. Um, if we have a little bit of time to talk about that um, and depression. And because it's kind of, we talk about the gut microbiome and functional medicine all the time. Our bodies have microbiomes everywhere. Um, but the oral microbiome is so critically important. And I know you went to the dentist this morning, so <laughs> it's I did. on your mind. You know, the biological dentist. And yeah. so I have been asked to do something called the oil pulling because my dry out a little bit, just as we get older and I have this amount of clients. So oil pulling is really great for anybody who has a dry mouth or is beginning to have a sensation of drying, and especially as we get older. So what it is, is you take, you know, either coconut oil or MCT oil, and you just kind of leave it in your mouth. You don't swallow it. You have to leave it in for about a minute or two. Oh, and just it's, a minute or two. I thought it was wow. 10, 20 minutes. Well, the longer we leave it in, the better it is, but I mean, if I told somebody 20 minutes, they're just not going to do it because you've got to be able to not swallow it. So you right, want, right, it's right, better to right. leave it in for a shorter amount of time and do it more frequently. But if he's like, the longer one can do it, the better it is. He's like, if you can get to five, but he's like, it's very hard not to swallow for five minutes. Yeah. I mean, you oh, can right. swallow oil, it's totally fine. But like some people are like totally disgusted by that. And so they can only do it first. But that helps with dry mouth and that actually helps keep the biggest change in the oral microbiome, it's very different than the gut microbiome, but that it starts in the oral microbiome. If it's not healthy, it then affects the lower microbiome, the gut microbiome. So oil pulling as we get older is really about keeping enough moisture in there so that the good bacteria can exist. 
bad bacteria and more anaerobic bacteria can grow as our mouth tends to dry out. And okay. we can dry out because we keep our mouth open, we're getting older, we have Sjogren's or some autoimmune condition, we have dental problems. So there's lots of reasons why. Yeah. So that's one. Um, you know, and then the other thing is what are we eating? Right. So people who say, you know, I brush, I floss, and I still have problems with my oral microbiome, then the question really becomes what's going on in the bottom? Because these are connected. Or are there hidden what we call cavitations? So when a tooth is pulled or there's a little pocket of tissue that's left, and then bacteria can kind of just kind of settle in there. And so oftentimes a biological dentist, not the regular dentist, there's a lot of arguments between them if that is even a true thing and not everybody believes that. Um, so they can hold things, but root canals, root canals are in the biological dental world that they should be temporary fixtures. But if they're in there for a long period of time, there can be hidden bacteria because they're not closed. Mm. It's an open system that can go where things can go through from the very top. One cannot see that looking in the mouth, but when you do an x-ray you, or a CT scan, you'll see that it's not closed and things can fall through there and they can grow in there. So they don't like that either. So, yeah. And the oil pulling, I mean, coconut oil is an antibacterial too, right? So is that part of the reason why the oil pulling works really well to clear yeah. out any bacteria? Yeah. yeah. It's cheap. I mean, it's a very cheap thing to do. Um, Absolutely. You know, and so when you think about it, how did the ancients actually, so they used, um, so in India, my family would use the neem tree and neem is one of these antimicrobial trees. Yeah. I mean, plants that we use, but when you chew on it, all of that neem gets secreted in and it cleans out the teeth. Yeah. And when I asked about, I wonder if they did oil pulling, they used ghee. They didn't have coconut oil. Oh, because ghee. ghee was, I mean, everybody had, you know, right. the cow in front and Bessie gave out lots of milk and that's pure A2 milk, right? It's very wow. good milk. Interesting. Oh, that's a really cool thing to think about. I know there's some neem toothpaste out there too. I don't know if those are effective or helpful or whatever, but um, I think, you know, that's interesting to think about. Tell me the difference, like just if you have like a good definition of biologic dentist versus traditional dentist. So I'm not an expert of defining them um, and what their training is differently. So the biological dentists are really looking at full function. They're looking at how the tongue moves. Is it tethered? Um, and because they really believe that the tongue is the airway. So um the tongue, it holds all of the fascia of the entire body. It's all connected to the tongue. Mm. And so if the tongue is tethered, um, whether it's an anterior, posterior, lateral, buccal, ties, you know, the lips are tethered, everything is always falling inward. And the tongue is what keeps the mouth, from, it helps push the teeth outward. So 90% of our children now need braces. Before the 1950s, you know, very few people ever even got braces. They didn't know what braces were. So the question is like, what happened? So was it just the food? Um, you know, lots of reasons. We stopped chewing, we have more processed food, but we also stopped releasing tongue tops. So we used to all have duos right at birth and they would just release a tongue tie right away. And we also stopped breastfeeding. So then the, the, the baby's, you know, movement is first just anterior, posterior, anterior, posterior, but that tongue tie, if it was released, it would allow that baby to move all over the place. 
So now, you know, but once one generation has a smaller jaw, each progressive generation will have a smaller jaw. So even if the woman now breastfeeds for one or two years, their baby can still have a tongue tie because she had a tongue tie. Hmm. And then from cats, what we know is it takes seven to eight generations to correct. Oh my gosh. Wow. I'm like, yeah. So I'm like, oh, well, I will be dead before that happens. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But not everybody's going to the biologic dentist either. So. (laughs) Right. Right. It's been very, I mean, like I got my son to do this. I mean, it's totally not about depression, but I mean, I think, but when you think about it, like maybe there is something here. If you open up oxygenation and you improve sleep, because, you know, if you have a tongue tie, you don't sleep as well. So now we, we may have mild sleep apnea or even moderate sleep apnea. And if we open up oxygenation at night and we improve sleep, we improve our detoxification ability. We improve this. I mean, what, what else is it doing? Yeah. I, I, no one's ever done that study. So we don't know. Um, well, I do know that um, in that book, Breathe by James Nestor, he talked a lot about um, the oral, not the oral microbiome, but it's, it's breathing, right? So about taping your mouth shut at night, you know, breathing through your nose more and the connection between the oral facial changes that you can see with that. Um, And there is a study at the end of the book, which really caught my eye because, you know, my background is as a speech pathologist, not with kids, but I looked in lots of mouths all through my entire career, right? And it it was, there's a study um, with a speech pathologist, I think it might be out of Stanford, um, that they're doing a lot of work to see, um, you know, how, what the changes are in terms of sleep, in terms of speech, in terms of um, cognition as well, with keeping your mouth taped and, and the, the jaw and oral microbiome stuff. Um, oh, that's fascinating. So there, I know for a lot of, you know, because you probably hear this, you know, if you take your mouth shut, there's people with, you know, problems with their nose and they can't breathe. There's a little device you can buy. It's on Amazon. It's called Hale, H-A-L-E. And you just plug it in your nose, it forces your nose open. Because if you've taped your mouth shut and you're just not a, a nose breather, you're like, I don't know how to do this. That is great. It's not good for kids because it's too big for them. But for sure. adults, it's, wonderful. it's like 30 oh. bucks. It's very, it's a wonderful investment. I'm going to buy that for my husband. <laughs> <laughs> I think he needs that. <laughs> I'm not. I, mom's the word. I didn't say anything. <laughs> but I think there's so many, there's so many things that we can think about on even just small little things like, you know, as people listen to this podcast, they don't have to do every single thing right off the bat, but, you know, maybe take a couple of things that, that we've talked about here and start to use them on a daily basis and see how much different it is. I mean, I know like this is, I think people think it sounds crazy, but I actually do tape my mouth shut to sleep and I feel better waking up in the morning. My mouth is not dry. I know I was a nose breather. And now if I don't do it, I do notice that I actually breathe through my nose more. So I've retrained myself to breathe through my nose more. And I, I do, my sleep scores are much better. My HRV at night is better. I just, it's, it's a really powerful thing. So I think all of these things in combination can be really helpful to kind of think about layering, like the holy basil tea is a great idea. I mean, some of the breath practices, the oral stuff, there's so many different things that we have control over that we don't have to go just to medications and traditional medicine to to really make a difference. The one supplement that I I think a lot of people don't know about for depression is saffron. 
Oh, no, I don't even know that. You know, so when we know the studies all show dietary wise, you know, when we have a very rich diet of flavonoids, this is all the different multicolored foods, saffron capsules is, you know, at high doses is wonderful for depression. Oh, my um, gosh. So and is it? Is I mean, most people about omega-3 and vitamin D and stuff like that, but saffron is amazing. Is there any contraindication and, and what amount, what's a high dose? I mean, we're using anywhere from about a thousand milligrams once or twice a day. I mean, so I let kind of patients, I mean, if, if I think it's an MTHFR defect, SAM-E, um, S-adenosyl methionine, um, yeah. it's a wonderful one to use. Um, and that's anywhere from 200 to 800 milligrams, not good for bipolar. It's just, okay. You have to make sure it's not bipolar. Okay. But I like saffron for more moderate to severe depression. I've actually had, I heard someone else talk about it and I started looking up the information and it was really quite fascinating. And I, my patients came back like, I feel better. I'm like, huh. Oh, no. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I had very I had low expectations, but I was surprised. And you know, there isn't a really great, great, I mean, he, he has a brand that my patients just couldn't find. So we, Life Extensions has a brand and that's one they were using. And I was like, wow, I'm pleasantly surprised. I, right. Yeah, it's been some, one of my new ads. <laughs> I mean, clearly we're doing all the omega-3 and all the normal stuff, but I, I don't really, after doing Sam Ian Saffron, I'm like, well, it is kind of lower. Like, like, just like the psychiatrist said, I can't remember his name, Prozzi. Yeah, he said it's you know, for more than more severe depression. Mild and moderate, that's not really what it's indicated for. Okay. What, what is it indicated for mild to moderate? The, the saffron It's more for the moderate to severe. Okay. Moderate to severe. Yeah. I mean, that's, what's so great about this, this world is that the world of integrative and functional medicine is that, you know, every time you turn around, you can find something else that is a potential thing to use. Right. Yeah. And, but is, once again, it's always back to food. Yeah, it's always back to food. You're right. So, I mean, you you can cook with saffron. You certainly probably can't get a thousand milligrams of saffron. Sure. And, and most saffron, I mean, is at, starts off at 50 milligrams. So they're using, you know, big, big doses, you know. So most people start off at 50, but you titrate pretty quickly up. It's hard to get to 500 because there are a lot of little pills. Everything is in small amounts. Uh, I think he's compounding it for his patients. Um, but most of my patients have used about 200 and they felt it was pretty good because I gave them a lot of leeway. I was like, you know what? I want you to try to titrate to what you felt, you know, 300 was probably like a higher dose I've used. I mean, I'm not using the doses he's talking about, but I, I really, tell me again who he is. I think I, that so it's Gerald's show. Um, oh. I'm so sorry. I don't remember. I looked him no, up. That's okay. Um, I'm going to look it up right now for you. Okay, but yeah, I'll, I'll link that in the show notes, Dr. Kara Fitzgerald. She's got some great people on her podcast. Um, yeah, and he talked a lot about it. It's Jonathan Powski, P-R-O-U-S-K-Y. Okay, I'll find it. So yeah, it was actually very interesting. So yeah, I've actually, I mean, but once again, I looked up the information on saffron. It's a flavonoid, which is another polyphenol. And it's very good blood-brain penetration. But once again, if we just eat it through diet, and as Indians, you know, I mean, we use saffron in rice. I mean, I remember my mom's like, oh, this is like, I mean, I remember she's like, for just this tiny amount of saffron, she's like, it was a hundred bucks. It's, like, it's expensive. What? Yeah. I mean, and she would put it in her rice every day. So, you know, 
thank you. I mean, this is like such great information. There's some really good takeaways for people. And that's really what I, I want to give during this podcast is really the discussion about it, the things that people can do. There's so many ways to really empower yourself and, and do things on a daily basis on your own and see, you know, N of one, see what happens, right? And none of these things are, um, you know, there's not a lot of contraindication. You can do it in a small dose, see what's going on. Holy basil tea, you can calm me down all through the day. That's perfect, right? Um, so before we end, I just want to um, have you give me a couple of books that, I mean, we mentioned some in here, but are there any other books that you think are really good for people to to really read and, and kind of get a sense of, of where some of the depression might be coming from and what to do? I mean, if it's trauma related, I yeah. really like The Body Keeps the Score. Uh, the one, if it's just more women, I do like Kelly Brogan's A Mind of Your Own. I like her work a lot. Um, but the other one I like just general is Molecules of Emotion. It's an old book. It's, it's once again, it's about it's what we're thinking. And I think that's really powerful. I mean, we don't think, we, we endlessly have like random thoughts and we, and these are all very impactful for us. And I, it's just, I really like that book a lot. It's an old book, but yeah, um, no, I don't think it's changed a lot. <laughs> no, it's really good research. I mean, and it is truly, we don't even notice like the awareness of our thoughts is really so, um, it's just not there. I mean, I think if people had a little more awareness, a little more attention at what's streaming through our head on a constant basis, we'd be shocked. <laughs> and yeah, then, if somebody and then, was actually to keep tally of all of our thoughts, you would see how much negativity was coming every single day. Right, right, right. Yeah, so that's a great place to start. Yeah. Well, Seema. <laughs> Dr. Patel, such a great time talking to you. I really yes. appreciate you being here. Um, this is really a lot of great information for people. So um, the topic of depression and functional medicine is, is something we see so often. So I think everybody's going to get a lot of information from this. All right. Well, great. It was a pleasure talking to you as always. You know, we could endlessly chat. <laughs> no, I know. Thank you so much. We'll be, you'll be on again to talk about kids. Okay. No worries. Yeah, love okay. about that. <laughs> no. Thank you. All right. Take care. Bye. So if you've made it this far, I'm sure you enjoyed the conversation. There is so much information and be sure to check the show notes because I put links to pretty much everything that we've spoken about in this podcast and it's, it's great information, handy things, all the books, all of the, um, things that we talked about, like oil pulling and neem toothpaste and hail the sleeping device. Um, also, research studies on saffron um, and a, a link for saffron capsules and SAMI. So if you really enjoyed the content of this, check out the show notes, which are included below and on my website, karenbush.com. Thanks for being here, and I'll see you in two weeks. Bye.